Our text this morning is Job chapter 16. Hear God's word. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. And he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. When a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Taken as the theme of this particular chapter, and uh, this is, in general, Job's second response to Eliphaz, but I've taken as the theme, various witnesses. And I'll ask you, have you ever been called to be a witness? Perhaps you are thinking of a witness in a courtroom. The judge calls for a witness for the prosecutor or defendant to come forward. The witness steps into the witness stand where he is sworn in and he is asked questions. And if you were to be such a court witness, you would tell the court what you saw, what you heard, what you experienced. Or perhaps you have been called upon to be a witness in a more informal way. You, you may be asked to give your knowledgeable perspective or opinion on something. Uh, perhaps you've witnessed how to do something that you have then shared with others. Or you, in a sense, have acted as a witness if you have filled out a review in order to testify to what you think about a particular product that you bought. You're acting like a witness even in the simple matter of recalling for someone what was said in a past conversation. And of course, significantly, you and I are called to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. We are to tell others of what we know about Jesus, about the salvation that he has earned for us through his death and resurrection. Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1, in the second part of verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the end of the earth. And we take that as a call to testify to what we have seen, heard, and experienced concerning our relationship with the Lord. Joel presents to us several personal witnesses who can testify to what they have seen and heard here in in, um, this chapter. And have you ever thought of how things other than people can also be witnesses? If you look at the word witness in the dictionary, one definition of a witness focuses on a witness being something that serves as a sign. A dark, cloudy sky can be a witness to a coming storm. The dark sky is a witness in the sense that it is a sign that points to and in a sense testifies to the fact that a storm is brewing. We find a number of these impersonal witnesses in Job 16. There are the witnesses of Job's illness. There's the witness of his conscience. There are also personal witnesses, as mentioned a moment ago. Job himself serves as a kind of witness as he explains what he has been going through. Also, toward the end of chapter 16, he desires a heavenly witness. These verses deal with several kinds of witnesses, and so I've taken as the theme various witnesses. We're going to consider, first of all, Job's personal witness. Second, the witness of Job's trials. Third, the witness of Job's conscience. And fourth, the personal witness who is desired. So we begin with Job's personal witness regarding himself, which is what we find in verses 1 through 6. And let us take notice that Job is here in these verses responding directly to what Eliphaz has just said to him. Back in the beginning of chapter 15, Eliphaz attacked what Job had been saying by insisting that what Job was saying was just a bunch of windy, hot air that didn't do any good. And now in the beginning of chapter 16, Job pushes back on that precise point and says that it's actually Eliphaz and his friends who have windy words. And Job doesn't stop there, for it would have been one thing if Job's friends had spoken words that were only unprofitable. Unprofitable words are basically basically nothing words. They are words that serve no purpose. They don't help. They don't make a situation better. But they also don't make the situation worse. And that would have been better than the unloving words that Job received, which were actually harmful and discouraging. So what is Job's testimony regarding his experience as his friends have sought to instruct him and to comfort him in his trials Well, he begins in verse 2 with his witness testimony. I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. In other words, what you've been telling me is nothing new. Your simple system where sin causes all of our troubles and good works create blessings. This system is well known. But regardless of how you may think the system is comforting, you are miserable comforters. And there's irony in that expression of miserable comforters. At the end of chapter 15 in verse, in verse 35, Eliphaz said that evil people by their sins conceive trouble. And the word trouble is the same word that is now translated in verse 2 of uh, chapter 16 as the word miserable in miserable comforters. So literally it could read troubling comforters are you all. So Eliphaz has accused Job of one who conceives trouble. He now turns that back on them and says, you want to talk about trouble? You are troubling comforters. 
And uh, this is, of course, no, this is comfort that's no comfort at all. It's comfort that actually increases the trouble or misery of what Job is going through rather than actually ministering comfort. And in verses 3 through 6, Job is bemoaning the fact that his friends' long-winded speeches that ultimately are irrelevant to a situation, they just don't ever seem to end. And it's like his friends must be mad or irritated at him because they keep answering what he says with great emotion. Literally, the word there in verse 3, the word provokes in the Hebrew means to make sick. Obviously, his defense must be making them sick based on how they are reacting to him. And yet, if they know they are right and know that he is wrong, why are they so irritated? And if what he is saying is wrong, why don't they explain to him the answers that he seeks rather than just giving the same meaningless canned speeches over and over and over again? In verses 4 through 6, Job insists that if he were to trade places with them, of course, it would be easy to do what they've been doing. It's not hard to say a bunch of words and shake one's head and rebuke. But Job insists that he would act differently if he was in their place. He would use his words to strengthen them. He would use his words to lessen their pain. But as it is, if he voices his struggles, or if he forbears, as he says, and keeps silent, either way, his pain is not lessened. The problem is that no matter what he does, he gets the same response every time, a response that dismisses out of, out of hand this, his claim to be an innocent sufferer. He gets the response again and again of rebuke for not repenting. Next in this chapter, covering verses 7 through 16, is the witness of Job's trials, the, the witness of his sufferings. Remember how I said that a witness can be a sign. Well, Job's illness is a witness because it is a sign of God's wrath against him. Of course, not actually, uh, but that's the perspective of, of uh, Job's friends and perspective that Job, to some extent, has bought into. We know that Job is a believer whose sins were covered by the blood of Christ to come. The Bible tells us that he is a man of faith who took his relationship with God seriously the Bible tells us that he feared God, that he turned away from evil. He was not a hypocrite. Scripture uses the word blameless. That is, he wasn't outwardly something different than what he was on the inside. He had a genuine love for God that manifested itself in repentance from sin and in a desire to live a godly life. And if there is a truth that we find consistently and clearly taught throughout the Bible, it is that when you put your faith in God's Messiah, who we know as Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, and God's wrath is quenched. How could there be wrath for us when Jesus took it all when he died on the cross? His agonizing death on the cross was all about him bearing the wrath of God against our sins in order to satisfy God's justice, in order to set us free from ever having to experience God's wrath. And while we know this is true, and Job knows it's true for him, or at least that it should be true for him, his experience tells him otherwise. His ill body, he says in verse 8, testifies to his face. Notice again how we have this again and again throughout the, these verses, this idea of a witness, of a, of, of, a test, of a testifying. And obviously his friends have picked up on this witness and they have listened to it and it has told them that Job is one bad sinful guy. And uh, the miserable 
message of comfort that Job has been hearing from his so-called friends and a message that Job has been buying into to some degree is the message that God hates him. The message of the system is clear. What Job is experiencing is a sure sign. It is a witness of the fact that God is against Job, that God is seeking to destroy him. And notice how Job has on some level accepted this message as he describes in verses 7 through 16 the, the stance that God has taken toward him. Basically, Job is worn out by God. Notice verse 7. And notice that throughout these verses, Job is not afraid or hesitant to admit that God is in control of what is happening to him. He isn't blaming Satan. His God is not the false God of our age, who is pictured as just wringing his hands in frustration over what Job is experiencing as though he would want to bring an end to all of it, but can't or won't. No, Job's God is sovereign. And Job is correct about that. But this fact is exactly what makes his trials so difficult. For since God had a plan that allowed Job's trials, it's only natural to see Job's experiences as a sign of God's attitude toward him. As far as Job and his friends believe, Job's trials testify that God is against him. And so rather than being filled with joy and hope for the future, Job is tired And what is a huge factor in his readiness to give up and throw in the towel is the fact that he feels alone. He says in verse 7 that God has made desolate all my company. And we take that to mean he's he's referring here to how his family is gone, his, his children are dead, his wife has abandoned him at least emotionally if not physically. His friends are are these miserable comforters. The company of fellow believers in the covenant community have turned against him. Um, Even wicked unbelievers have taken advantage of his weakness to persecute him, as he explains in verse 10. I want to jump to verse 10 here for a moment. So, the witness of a godly man suffering as Job has, you must recognize that is to the world an opportunity. It's It's to the world an opportunity for mockery and abuse. So in verse 10, the wicked gape at Job. Their mouths are open in shock and disbelief that such things would happen to him, and they are ready to attack. What is happening to Job undoes in their minds any reason to respect him, any reason to submit to his God. They strike him on the cheek in hate because they have wanted to silence him, but apparently before they were afraid. But now, based on the testimony of his suffering, they are confident that God is not on his side. Now, we aren't told exactly what these ungodly are thinking, but it is a common thing for the wicked to hate believers because of how we, in word and lifestyle, call sinners to repentance. And the ungodly are constantly looking for excuses not to have to repent and trust Christ. And when they see a believer struggling in life, they are glad because they take that struggle as proving that that so-called believer is not right with God. And if that is true, then of course they don't have to listen to a believer's call to repentance and faith. And to take things to another level, if the ungodly can actually persecute you as a believer and then seemingly get away with it, That especially is taken as evidence that your message of salvation is irrelevant. And unbelievers have persecuted Job, which is bad enough, but what is worse is Job's perception of God's involvement. According to Job, God is the one who has given him over to the ungodly. Verse 11, 
God has refused to take up Job's case, his cause. Job's persecution by the ungodly is taken as a witness of what God thinks of him. Now, if we go back to verse 8, that verse does tell us that Job has very much in mind the illness that has taken over his life. Um, He is becoming emaciated as he loses weight, as he shrivels up. In verse 9, God describes, uh, Job describes God as coming against him like a predator, attacking his prey. Visualize a, a predatory beast tearing into its victim with sharp claws and teeth. And picture the eyes of the predator filled with fire and rage as it goes in for the kill. Literally in the Hebrew, the adversary sharpens his eyes. The ESV translates it very literally at this point. The adversary sharpens his eyes, and the word for sharpening or sharpens is the same word used of the sharpening of a sword. The predator has directed all of his eyes' attention to a sharp point as he glares at his quarry in his bloodthirst. And here's the point. Notice this. God is the predator. Job is the victim. And there's more. This is not the only disturbing figure of God that Job uses. If we skip to verses 11 through 14, we have these additional word pictures of how God is treating him. In verse 11, God is a traitor who has given him over to the hands of ungodly people. In verse 12, God is a big bully who comes against Job while he he is there at ease, minding his own business, and God comes and breaks him apart. Job is helplessly grabbed by the neck and dashed to pieces. And the word in verse 12 for broke, where it says God broke him apart, is the Hebrew word that is used when God accuses his people of breaking his covenant. In Job's experience, covenant fellowship with God has been broken. Job is probably implying God is breaking me as though I am a covenant breaker worthy of being cast off. In the second half of verse 12 through the first part of verse 13, God is a general directing his archers against Job as the target of attack. In the second part of verse 13, God is a swordsman who has violently slashed Job open with his gut spilling out on the ground. In verse 14, God is like a warrior rushing against a city under siege. The city is Job, and God is making inroads against him again and again and again. In verses 15 and 16, Job summarizes his physical condition. He begins by saying, I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin. And we wonder what Job means by this. Does he mean simply that all he wears anymore is sackcloth? So it's become like his second skin. If a person was to decide to wear sackcloth as his regular clothes for every day, um, he would have taken that piece of sackcloth that normally would just be draped over him, and he would sew it into a garment. Is that what Job has done? Is, has he made a concession to what seems to be a permanent state of sorrow? Because people who were in sorrow would wear sackcloth. Is he essentially saying, my life is nothing now but sorrow. That's all it's ever going to be, so I might as well just make my sackcloth into clothes and just wear them every single day. Or is he speaking figuratively here about the condition of his skin? That's an interesting line of, of 
interpretation that's brought out by a number of commentators that perhaps he's highlighting here how ugly his skin condition has become. His skin is so rough, it's so scaly, that it looks like sackcloth has been sewn to his body, that his skin is now sackcloth. It would be consistent of Job to be speaking in figures in the first half of verse 15, because in the second half, uh, most certainly he is employing there a figure of speech. Or literally it reads, and have laid my horn in the dust. God has laid Job's horn in the dust. So Job is thinking of himself like a wounded rhinoceros or an ox, which has languished in defeat. Its head is down, its, its horn is down to the ground. Uh, just recently we studied Psalm 75 and noticed how a horn symbolizes strength and power for Job's horn to have been laid in the dust pictures him as being humbled into the dust of the earth. In verse 16, his face is a witness, witness to how hard life has been. His face is red with weeping, that on his eyelids is deep darkness, is a poetic way of saying he has dark circles around his eyes. His face tells the story of a man tired, of a man beaten down. And Job's point is that he is like this because of God's wrath and hatred against him. What has happened is taken as a witness to his relationship with God. Remember what Eliphaz said back in chapter 15, where he accused Job in verses 25 and 26 of stretching out his hand against God in defiance of the Almighty. Remember how Eliphaz was always talking about the wicked man, but we know Eliphaz is really talking about Job. And Eliphaz says that the wicked man runs stubbornly against God with a thickly bossed shield. With these words, Job was being accused of being hostile toward God, of attacking God. But in chapter 16 here, Job contradicts Eliphaz's perspective. He says, no, Eliphaz, God is the one who has attacked me. God is the one who has declared war on me. And Job and his friends agree on this point. God must be clearly upset with Job. What Job's friends don't believe is the witness of Job's conscience as expressed in verses 17 and 18. He's just given this vivid description of God coming against him like a wild animal, giving him over to the ungodly, like a bully, like a general with his archers, like a swordsman, like a warrior. And then what does Job say in verse 17? He has just spoken about how God has come against him like this in wrath and hatred. He says, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. Job has never claimed to be without sin. He's not claiming that now. But he is claiming to be innocent of anything that would prompt God to come against him like this. He is saying that as far as he is concerned, as he examines his heart before God, he, can, he can't explain why God would hate him, why God would be so angry. Job's miserable comforters have accused him of violently mistreating his neighbors. Job directly denies any such accusation. He adds that his prayer is pure. Now, he's not claiming to have perfect prayers. But what he is saying is that his prayers are ones that God should be willing to hear because they are the prayers of a man who is coming to God sincerely. The word, prayer, that the, the word pure here for pure prayers basically means for something to be unmixed with wrong and therefore righteous. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. To pray to God for help and blessing while harboring a sin, while refusing to repent, that would not be a pure prayer. 
To pray to God is only a show of piety. That's not a pure prayer. Job insists that his prayer is pure because he is praying to God in a spirit of humility and with a fear of God. He is praying as one who, who knows he is in covenant fellowship with God and thus a man whose prayers God should hear. If he came to God in prayer thinking that God is obligated to hear him because of something in him, that would be an evil prayer. But to go to God in prayer, repenting of your sin, pleading with God to bless you solely on the basis of his own grace and the basis of his own promises, that's a pure prayer. And so Job has a clear conscience. It's certainly possible to have a clear conscience because you are hardened against recognizing sin in your life, so you don't You have a conscience that shouldn't be clear, but to you it is clear. It's also possible to be oblivious to your true condition. At the same time, a clear conscience can be the mark of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the gospel. John says in 1 John 3, verses 21 and 22, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. I've included verse 18 under the theme of Job's clear conscience because Job is convinced that if the Lord does kill him, his blood will call out for justice. The wording of verse 18 reminds us of Cain's murder of his brother Abel. Remember the word of God to Cain there in Genesis 4.10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground unjustly shed blood, cries to God for justice. And Job calls out for such justice against the shedding of his blood by God. Apparently he believes that his death is on the near horizon. And the problem as Job sees it is that while God should be hearing his prayer, while his sins should be forgiven based on everything he knows about how to be right with God in the covenant, through repentance and faith, yet God is not it seems, treating him justly. And so he brings up yet again a desire for a witness who can testify for him. Since it appears God won't give him the time of day, perhaps there could be a spokesman for him in heaven who would plead his innocence on his behalf. In fact, he's so hopeful that there is such a person, he says, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. Job explains that he needs this witness because his friends are no help but only scorn him. And he's caught up with grief. His time is spent pouring out tears to God. This leads him to once again in verse 21 return to this idea of a witness who can argue his case with God like a man, he says, might do in a human court. What exactly is prompting Job to desire this witness? Verse 22, as Job there reflecting on his impending death, He has a desire to have this relationship with God sorted out before his death. He knows that after death, everything is settled for eternity. The witness that Job desires for him is a fairly vague hope. But for us, we see the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Job describes this witness in a way that leaves commentators and leaves us trying to sort out, is this witness that Job has in mind, is this a man? Or is this witness God? And this is an interesting question. For who could ever imagine the plan of God in salvation, the plan of God to send his son, who is both his son and a man like us in the incarnation? When Job refers to this witness, we expect Job to be thinking about a man standing up with God and arguing against God, but and, and, and it's really not difficult to explain why the idea that this witness might be God himself is questioned by commentators. Imagine the idea of God arguing against God. At the same time, we must take the text at face value, which makes it sound like this witness is God himself. For one thing, Scripture clearly teaches that it's God who will avenge the blood that is unjustly shed on this earth which compels us to understand Job's cry for vengeance being directed to God. And furthermore, for Job to say that this witness is now in heaven and on high, that is language in scripture that is typically ascribed to God himself. Also in verse 21, the identity of the he whom Job hopes will argue with God is answered by the nearest antecedent who is God. In other words, Job is saying, taking, taking, if we take it literally and without prejudice, this is uh, the second part of verse 20 through the first part of verse 21, my eye pours out tears to God in order that he, that is God, would argue the case of a man with God. That's what the Hebrew says. What Job appears to be wrestling with is the impossibility the inappropriateness of a mere man arguing with God, while at the same time needing and desiring someone on his level who can understand his case, and yet someone who is significant enough for God to listen to him. And this language of God arguing with God is understandable when on the one hand, God sovereignly ordains Job's sufferings, and on the other hand, reveals himself as a covenant God of grace and mercy. So Job is wrestling here with what seems to be a contradiction in God. And Job seems to be entertaining the hope that perhaps the God of the covenant will be a witness on his behalf. And God, who is currently a God of wrath, will listen to himself and will relent from his anger. As we think of these things in the light of Jesus Christ, we see what a wonderful Savior we have and how happy Job must be to now be in heaven and to better understand God's nature and ways with his people. For God has provided a witness, even if not exactly as Job envisioned. Job is, uh, Jesus is, in fact, a witness better than Job envisioned. Um, Jesus is God's eternal son, God himself, who in taking on human flesh became one of us. As a man, he can serve as our advocate and as our mediator. He can bridge the gap between our holy God and us. And after Jesus accomplished all that was necessary to save us from sin through his perfect obedience and through his atoning death on the cross by which he suffered the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins, after that Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted to God's right hand. And from there he serves, as 1 John chapter 2 says, as our advocate, as our defense attorney, but notice the significant way in which Jesus is different than the witness that Job hoped for. Job's witness 
is pictured as having to argue with God for our salvation. Job makes it sound like God doesn't really want to save him, that he has to be talked into being loving toward him. Or that God is within himself a contradiction of wrath and love, so that it's like he's two different gods. But that's not really how it is at all. No, from eternity, God loved us. He loved us even while we were sinners, even while we were his enemies, even while we were children of wrath. And his love compelled him to send his son to die for us. And he had to die because he is a God of wrath, a God of justice, a God of righteousness. And God's justice says that our sins deserve his wrath. And so there's no contradiction within God. He is a God of wrath against sin and a God of love. And furthermore, since Jesus is God, there's no conflict between him and the Father. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all in perfect agreement about the plan of salvation, the plan to send Jesus to save us. All of the persons of the Godhead are on board to bring us into their fellowship. So when we think of Jesus as our advocate, don't ever imagine Jesus as like having to calm down a wrathful and hateful God. He doesn't debate and argue with the Father to give us salvation. The correct perspective is that as we sin, and we do continue to sin, yes, God's natural reaction would be to respond in wrath against us because he is holy, because he is righteous. But because of Jesus and his perfect work, and notice this, the gift of of salvation that God himself provided, God sent his son. On that basis, God forgives our sins and shows us nothing but grace and mercy all of our days. There's also the, the aspect of Jesus as our advocate, as he, he pleads his work on our behalf when Satan accuses us of sin and tries to argue that we deserve God's wrath. No, Jesus is our advocate. Jesus makes all the difference. But again, he is our savior by God's own appointment, out of God's own desire that we would know his love rather than his wrath. If only Job could have seen clearly that God was on his side and that God would be a witness for his good in the person of the coming Christ. If only Job could have understood, as we do, how God's own son in the person of Jesus Christ suffered what Job describes here. This really, in a a way, lays out for us uh, an amazing description of the kinds of things that Jesus experienced actually under the wrath of God as he was dying for our sins. Job's experience, described here, uh, of what it's like to be under the wrath of God, of being alone, of being persecuted by ungodly men, of being violently and viciously attacked by God. That's what Jesus actually experienced as he bore the wrath of God in our place. Now, Job felt something of what that was like, and yet Job was not under the wrath of God. Job now knows as a man living in heaven in the presence of God that we don't need a witness to argue for us against God. No, God is love. And from within his own heart, he desired our salvation and in love provided it for us by giving himself to the death of the cross through his son on our behalf. And so the greatest witness of all, the witness that you are to be left with here this morning is the witness of Jesus Christ. He is the witness that we need and desire. He is the witness of God's love for us. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are 
in these verses brought to see something of the horror of what it would be like to be under the wrath of God. And we thank you that your son, Jesus, bore that for us. We thank you, Father, that we do have a witness, witness that you have provided in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that it was your plan even from eternity that you would reveal yourself to us as a God of love, as a God of mercy and grace. And uh, Father, we pray that even as we face circumstances that, that seem to witness to your wrath, to your, to your anger against us, Father, may we recognize that we are not reading that, those signs correctly. Um, Lord, we thank you that for those of us who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for us. And uh, Father, we thank you that we have the hope of heaven. We know that um, your love for us has been set upon us even from eternity, and that love will never change, it will never falter, it will never fail. Lord, we thank you for uh, these gospel truths, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.